Coming up next, the Buckning Reads, Flannery O'Connor. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Booking. My name is Nathan Robertson. I'm joined by Pastor Jacob Benzel over there. He's the pastor and master of reading over so, there. He's wearing a stripy shirt. It's all good. It's wonderful. How you doing, Jake? Good. And then you? we got Brandon over there. He's got the thing and stuff. Well, today we're talking yep. about Flannery. Brandon, how you doing? Great, Nathan. Today we're talking about Flannery O'Connor. We are Mary Flannery, actually. Mary? Oh, is that her name? Yes. <laughs> well, I'm a less aptly named person. I don't know because... She does not strike me as a very merry individual, Brandon. No, she's not very merry. Or merry. No. Or merry. She never married. So None of the various homonyms could be applied to it. <laughs> Jake, question. Yeah. Have you ever taken your grandmother on a trip, flipped your car, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then had your entire family dragged into the woods and shot? One by one. No, not, no, not exactly, no. Brandon, question. Mm-hmm. Has... A slick Bible salesman ever stolen your wooden leg? Yes, more than once. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I don't learn from what I read. (laughs) Oh, boy, guys. Flannery O'Connor, I don't know how I feel about this woman. Why not? I'm just going to put my cards on the table at the very beginning of this episode. I loved her at a certain point because she was dark and she she got it. She understood life. She understood how terrible everything is and how depraved everything is. And it just really felt like, oh, wow, this dorky story that I stumbled across in a collection has everybody getting murdered at the end. That's kind of cool. You know, it just yeah. felt real and yeah. kind of you know, like a slap in the face or something. It just, it, it felt good. Nice contrast to, you know, the dorky, evan- no judgment evangelicalism you grew up with. Mm-hmm. Precisely. But a lot of people that I don't have great respect for, the same people we talk about that love Dostoevsky, that like existentialism and Nietzsche and Kierkegaard and all this stuff, really love Flannery O'Connor. Yes. And I think a lot of the people that really love Flannery O'Connor are the exact are the exact people that Flannery O'Connor would write stories about. That sure. is the irony, yes. That is the irony. So much irony. Irony on irony. <coughs> irony on irony. Turtles upon turtles. In fact, yeah. What's that sound? <laughs> What's already? <laughs> Context. Context. Well, I don't know. Do people want more of an introduction? Jake's well, wearing a stripy shirt. I am wearing a stripy shirt. He's really bulked up sweater. since the time when he was scrawny. Mm. Brandon, you've bulked up by by eating ice cream and stuff. Thank you, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, that's fun. You'll die at fifty. Context. <laughs> now, Brandon's. Uh, I like to joke that Brandon's fat and um, stuff, but couldn't be less true. Well. Could be less true. Could be less true. But it's not as true as I make it sound. Yeah. Brandon. Yes. Bang, bang. (sighs) Contextual Texan, for people that don't know this show, this maybe is their first episode. Could be. They should know. You do a segment. You're from Texas. Yes. And you provide much needed context for our work. So we're talking about the great Flannery O'Connor. We are. Her collection of stories, A Good Man is 
Hard to find. And that is true. Well, not really. I'm no? surrounded by two of them right now. Well, hey, look at that. Pretty easy. Yeah. All well, I have to do is look to my right and then look to my left. There you have it. So, concluded. You found one. Yep. Two. So, we don't need, need to talk about her. Easy peasy lemon squeezy. Oh, no. Brennan, yeah. give us some context, my friend. <sighs> Let's do it. Let's do it right now. That was the great Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay. So as I said, we are talking about not Flannery O'Connor, but actually Mary Flannery O'Connor. She would drop her first name so she could come, uh, go by the much more iconic sounding Flannery O'Connor when she mm-hmm. became a famous writer. So if you dropped your la- your first name, you'd be Scott Chastain, yeah. which would be less iconic, I think, than Brandon. Yeah. I mean, my if I went by my initials like C.S. Lewis, I would be B.S. Chastain. Which would be... Iconic in its way. <laughs> its way. Especially if I was like a humorist. Right. <laughs> oh, BS Chastain. Oh, BS Chastain. <laughs> now, Jake, of course, if he dropped his first name, he'd be Kyle Menzel. That's right. But if I went by my initials, JK. JK, JK. just rally. Just kidding, mm. Menzel. If I dropped my first name, I would be. And JK is a pretty. Come on, you got to admit it's it. It's kind of iconic. Pretty iconic. Yeah. Right up in Joe Rowling. Oh, by the way, I'm your humble and obedient host. Did I say that? And Jake's the pastor, and Brendan's the scholar. 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 The scholar. Who's a baller. Hey, we got a great Flannery O'Connor story uh, and uh, how it connects to the booketing. It's like the origin of the booketing. We're going to tell our origin we'll story. We'll tell it. And it's deeply connected to Flannery O'Connor. Jake fell so, into some nu- nuclear waste. He gained superpowers. That's right. Came out and he was the booketing. He was the booketing. And he yeah, had, and it's all because of Flannery O'Connor. Several yeah. forms of cancer. Coming up after the contextual Texan. Wow, yes. so we got to save time for all this. Even. Yeah, we just, I just wanted people to know that because, you know, if they're like, I love Flannery O'Connor. Oh no, it sounds like they might be a little down on Flannery no, O'Connor. No, I... Yeah, we're not down some, on her. No, I don't think so. We're going to figure it out. I like Flannery O'Connor. I've always loved Flannery O'Connor since I was a wee lad, um, or since I was, I don't know when I read her. but Since you were... Yeah. Well, we'll get to that in baggage, but first... The this is all over the place. Yeah, no. Unlike Flannery, she's not all over the place. She's no. very to the point. She is unified, and the point is people suck. Yes, everyone, especially if you think you don't. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, and... If you think that you get it... Then you don't. Then you don't. Then and you're going to die at the end of one of her stories. Mm. Strangers that come along are bad news. That is the or other moral, I think. If if someone comes Never and knocks on stranger. your door. Never trust a stranger. Stranger danger. Stranger the very danger. first person to introduce us to stranger danger was she probably is. Flannery O'Connor. Do yeah. not take a lollipop from a... I think she used that word, stranger danger. Stranger danger. Yeah. yeah. Brandon? Hey. Your context, sir. Or Flannery Let's O'Connor's do this. context. Okay, so we... She was Mary Flannery. Mary old Flannery O'Connor. Mary Flannery O'Connor. Mm-hmm. We've already established it's not Mary as in happy, or Mary as in married. No. But just Mary. Just Mary. Simple like Mary. Mary Shelley. That's because that's what her father and her mother called her. We're doing two Marys. <coughs> that is how people get their name. Yes. We're doing two Marys in a row. <laughs> we are. Yeah. <laughs> yes, just like Mary Shelley. That's mm-hmm. right. Very, very well. Very well pointed out, Nathan. <laughs> Thank you, Brendan. You're, you're welcome. <laughs> so we're finally well. getting into this. This is going great. You know, this, is, this is great. This is fantastic. I love it. So this could be people's first entry into the booketing. Yeah, which, true. which is strange to think. Yeah. And so we usually start with the booketing with some bio. Mm-hmm. You can go back in our long history and find out why we start with bio. Now, fun fact, bio stands for biography. 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 Mm-hmm. That's right. We do that because we take the author seriously. We do. We think the author matters. But not, but not the listener. <laughs> <laughs> but not the listener. We don't care about the listener at all. That might be my favorite thing you've ever said. And so the listener should know that in getting the bio, I do look to various sources. And one of the most important sources... Wikipedia. Wikipedia. <laughs> in this case, her book of letters. Yes. 
which I highly recommend to anyone who is a Flannery O'Connor fan mm-hmm. and also just a fan of good letter writing. She was a good letter writer. Her letters read well. You often go to go to authors' letters. Yes, I love mm-hmm. authors' letters I because if you read their letters and if they're a good collection of letters, and with Flannery O'Connor, we have them from right when she went to the Yadu Writers Colony, which was right before she went to Iowa's writing, mm-hmm. the writing school, which we'll talk about in a minute. Right. All the way till her death when she's talking about her lupus taking over and you can see her still trying to push through and write these stories. She was always very businesslike with her and kind of like Shakespeare in this in this sense. She was always rewriting her stories. She was very businesslike in her stories. She was always writing about the essays she was reading and excited to talk to people about the books they were sending to her and giving suggestions and getting suggestions. And she was, and you see that with her letters that writing was her life. Mm-hmm. So, and with letters, you get a picture of what the author looked at and tried to present themselves to either their close friends or to the public. Sure. And these letters were put together by Robert Fitzgerald and Sally, his wife, who she would live with uh, for two years when she lived in um, Connecticut, I think, Mm -hmm. when she went to the Yadu Writers Colony. Robert Fitzgerald was famous for being a translator. You either will read Fagels or you'll read Fitzgerald when you read Homer. Mm -hmm. He became the executor of her estate, and they collected all these letters that she had written and uh, published it as The Habit of Being. And so I would highly recommend anyone who's a big Flannery O'Connor fan to go and purchase that book and read it. So anyways, Flannery O'Connor. Flannery O'Connor. She was born in 1925 Mm. in Savannah, Georgia. Savannah, Georgia. Yeah. And in fact, uh, one of the large family vacations I've taken with my my family, Mm -hmm. that's the name, family Ah. vacation, Ah. (laughs) was to Savannah, Georgia. Now, do you have a large family, or was this a large vacation that your medium-sized This was everyone except Lucy, so four. Four. Plus my wife and Plus your wife. Yeah. So six. Six. So six, yes. There were six of us, and Megan Ewer as our nanny. There you go. You hired a nanny. It was fun. In in the best Southern tradition. Tradition. Not just a nanny. It's kind of, she was just along for the trip too. She did everything we did. The only time she nannied was one night she watched the kids so Ann and I could go out to, in Savannah, to a nice southern restaurant. There you go. Called the Pink Lady or something like that. Okay. Sounds gross. <laughs> trying to remember what it was. No, it was really delicious. It was a highfalutin. Highfalutin. One of these things that we would have all died if it was a Flannery O'Connor story. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, so she was born in Savannah, Georgia. If you go to Savannah, I've been there twice in my life, once for my cousin's wedding and then for this trip. If you go to Savannah, it's a beautiful city. You can go and visit the cemetery. It's mm. uh, a famous yes. cemetery. What, well, it's a famous when cemetery. I pick there's places to go. There's on a Clint Eastwood. Yeah, there's a Clint Eastwood. I think where are the nicest <laughs> cemeteries Wait, let me say, in America? I'm going to guess what you're going to say. Yeah. Are you going to say Midnight in the Garden of yes. Good and Evil? Because I've read that book and it's a fantastic book and I've never been to Savannah, but I've always wanted to because that book captures the atmosphere and the cemetery is a big part of it. Yeah, so and the cemetery like, is a huge part of it. Yeah. And the cemetery that's there is, it. it's famous. My you have the old headstones really and, the, and, and the live oaks I'm sorry, Jake. <laughs> it's a good book. It really is a cool cemetery. <laughs> it's it's a cool, worth you, wasting Nathan. a family vacation on. Now, fun <laughs> fact, I should say, if people want to come to Bloomington, Indiana, where we live, the cemetery, I probably said this on the booking before because I feel like I've Batman's said it. Grave. Batman's grave. Felt like... It was my turn to steal your thunder. No, I, I, I think oh, Batman's Grave. And... I'm glad you did. Yeah, we have Batman's Grave here. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so anyways, we may or may not have taken <laughs> a two-hour detour. A two-hour On our way detour. down to Savannah just to go to Flannery O'Connor's grave. 
and have been disappointed because that was one of the only days. I have this happen to me a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. I take a detour only to find out the museum or library I was trying to go to was closed. Yeah, do people know that about us? We when <laughs> no. we did the booking live we show, people, we meant to tell people, but I don't think we ever did. We went to the what poets? Yeah, the the poetry, poetry foundation. foundation. Yeah. their library. Yeah, they're the poetry foundation, which in is Chicago, a website that I visit all the time. Pretty much yeah. any time I'm looking at poetry, I've got their I app it. on my phone. Yeah. Oh, they have an app. They do. They have an app for that. I want to download that. Yeah, app. You should. You should. But maybe I won't because we went there and they were closed and they only opened like on every third eclipse. <laughs> yeah, you know. it's, it's like this weird schedule of poets, man. Yeah. It's like Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, and we went on a Friday, and it was closed. Yeah. yeah it was Saturday. insane. Went to Chicago. We the were there city, on the a Windy Saturday. City. What library is closed on a Saturday? I don't know. The Poetry Foundation Library. Brandon. It's a huge That's library, we discovered. though. Yeah. yeah. And there were people in there. Yeah. Pretty sure they could see us. And they just laughed at us. It was yeah. locked. Mm-hmm. Anyways. It's really sad. Same thing happened then on our way down to Savannah when we stopped in Milledgeville. And tried to go see the house where she had all the peacocks and wrote all her stories. It was closed. I even wrote the owner of the um, foundation that oversees the house to see if they would let us in, but they would not. So then I was a scholar, was studying Flannery O'Connor, and they would not <laughs> let us in. It was really disappointing. Too bad. Anyways, <clears throat> no use. What is it called? Stomping sour grapes, eating sour grapes. Spilling over cried spilled milk. milk. Cried milk, yeah. Mm-hmm. So Savannah, we went there, and it's a beautiful city. And you can see what it was like where she grew up. That's the whole point of this. And so visited her childhood home. (laughs) Visited her childhood home. And then if you go out and you look just to the right, the church is right there next to it. Right across the street is a school. She would stay in Savannah with her father, who was a real estate agent from a fairly wealthy family until about 1940 when she would have to move to Milledgeville to stay at the farm of her aunt, which is where she would stay the rest of her life. Her father was a businessman who had upswings and very fatal downswings. And so that's one of the reasons they had to move to Milledgeville was because of his failures as a real estate agent. Um, They were living off the charity of one of her aunts and very early throughout her life, early in her life and then throughout her life, she would have a very matriarchal tint to her life, kind of ruled by her aunt, ruled by her mother. And she would go and she would live in the, the, the farmhouse in Andalusia in Milledgeville. And that's where she would stay the rest of her life until she died of lupus, the same sickness that killed her father in 1941. Hmm. So that gets us up to when she's 16, right? Sweet 16. Sweet 16. We don't know. We, well, we know some about her life because she tells us a bit about it uh, up until she goes to college. She went to Georgia State. There is an actually, there's actually a video that you can look up online if you want to about a little girl who has a chicken that has unusual capability, I think, of walking backwards. And that is Flannery O'Connor as a little girl. You can actually find this video and see it. Like at a fair or what? It's at her house. They came and they like took a, the pic- news they took a video. Who are these chicken interested people that videoed this? When you would watch movies in the Nickelodeon yeah. at the time, they would have these little short films at the beginning. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, this would be like one of those. It's like the horse diving into the (laughs) thing. Here's a little girl and she lives in Savannah, Georgia and she's got a chicken that can walk backwards. Isn't this funny, (laughs) people? (laughs) Yep. So we can, you can actually go and you can see that video and you can go tour her home and you can see the church where she uh, grew up. (laughs) One of the important things to realize about Flannery O'Connor is that Roman Catholicism was a very important part of her uh, growing up. As you can tell from her name, she was very Catholic because she was very Irish in her heritage. Roman Catholicism would uh, be the predominant, what, how how would you say it? Be a predominant 
theme of her childhood. They would her her mother and her father would faithfully take her to church, especially her mother, uh, to mass. And the church, the school where she would go until I think sixth grade was a Catholic school until they moved to Milledgeville, where there were no longer any Catholic schools to go to. And so this would become a heavy influence in her life, which you will, which, which is important because of obviously because of what her stories will be about later on. You have anything to say? Our dad. All right. You look like you had something you wanted to say. Millageville sounds like a spoonerism of (coughs) Village Mill. True. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) Good transition for me there. Um, Not much more to say until she goes to Georgia State University. Um, She went there and she was on a three-year track, not because she was exceptional or anything. She was a fairly good student. She really didn't show any, a whole lot of interest in writing, actually, at the time. Hmm. Uh, She got a social studies degree and then decided she wanted to study journalism. The first instance that we have... Other than some juvenilia, she wrote some essays that are, you can actually go, I have a book here. Back when I was writing my dissertation on Flannery O'Connor, this was a useful book because I was going to go and try to spend a month in Savannah, Georgia, going through Georgia State uh, University's archives. And this is a book that tells you, this book here is all of the materials they have available to you. Hmm. And the whole first chapter is of her juvenilia, her early stories, some poems that she wrote. You want to hear a poem she wrote when she was a child? It's the kind of thing you can find on Orson Welles at Indiana University. That's also true. Yeah, here you go. I'm not a little angel. I lack that certain grace. My hands are always dirty, and I never wash my face. She wrote that when she was a kid. It's pretty nice. Yeah, it's funny. That is nice. You can see. Do we have how old? Yeah, we can figure that out. It would have been around 10th grade. So not too young. Yeah, sophomore. Sophomore, yeah. 15. So, older than even my Alyssa. That's right. Alyssa could write that. Sure. She could. <laughs> yeah. so, She's clever girl. But what you see is that she was a humorist even at a young age. When she went to Georgia State University, actually, I have the book right here. One of the earliest things we have from her, other than the essays and stuff she was writing for classes, is she was the cartoonist for their local paper. And you can see some of the cartoons here. She's a good cartoonist, actually. Well, it's sort of like the kind of art- artistically... It's the kind of style that you might see in the New Yorker. Actually. Yeah, very much. Yeah, so for example, you have two people dancing and really excited. Mm-hmm. And it says, these two express the universal feeling of heartbrokenness over school closing. <laughs> yeah, see? Stuff like that. It's like the opposite of what they're actually feeling, yeah. which lends a humorous feeling to it. Yeah, and so this is a fascinating book. So I know we're going to get to baggage, but we should just say Brandon has a big stack of books. Mm-hmm. At a certain point, he was writing his dissertation on this lady. Brandon... It wasn't yeah. just on her. Well, yes, that's all. It wasn't just on her, tell but... Us the, about the, tell us about the But the theme of the dissertation. So my dissertation, and we're going to talk more about this in a minute. My dissertation was going to be on the theme of judgment in Southern writing mm-hmm. in the from the 1940s to the end of the 1960s. And in particular, asking the question, why was judgment such a predominant theme of Southern literature? Mm-hmm. And so it was going to start with a guy we're about to talk about, William Faulkner. Sure. And it was going to end with a guy we just finished talking about. Shakespeare? Yes. <laughs> How'd you know? 1960s, yeah. <laughs> Cormac, Cormac McCarthy, McCarthy with The Orchard right. Keeper. So I've moved on to bigger and better things than that now, but that was going Hashtag to be- Hashtag the bookening. Hashtag, Hashtag the, bookening. the bookening. But that was going to be my dissertation. And a lot of my books come from that. Eat your so, heart out, universities. <laughs> that's We're right. We're still branding away from you. So we'll just move through my books, and this will kind of take us through her life here. This has been to just, I guess, so people can know how much I've lived and breathed Flannery O'Connor. This mm-hmm. is, I think, the first time in a while where I haven't actually had to look at notes. I'm just yeah. kind of going. 
You're just, yeah. This is just... So Georgia State University, she was there for three years. And actually we have, this was published recently. For anyone out there who's a Flannery O'Connor fan, this is something worth having. It's interesting. I think it's a little bit, I have thoughts on this. You don't, you're not going to find out much about Flannery O'Connor, but it is interesting because this is her prayer journal from mm-hmm. when she was right at the end of her years at Georgia State to the beginning of her career at Iowa State uh, as in the writers. Why is it not that useful? Well, who of us would want our prayer journals from our early 20s. I was just fantasizing about burning mine. Yep. I would not want my prayer journal from my early 20s. Shamefully embarrassing. To, yeah. yeah. Yep. And so this is actually pretty shamefully embarrassing. Yeah. But I at least pre- shows I, you. I like, go ahead, but I, yeah. I expect by the time you're done, I'll want to go dig up things and bury them, uh, yeah. burn them. Right. It's like, um, what's that famous Puritan? Because obviously somebody's going to want to publish it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was going to say it. Yeah, just, just go burn that now, Jake. <laughs> I don't even want, well... Do you have the key to Jake's house? Honestly, I don't, <laughs> I don't want my kids to... You know. Yeah. Well, it's like some things are just like, you know it probably meant something big to you at the time, but man, does it not cut across the years for something like that. Yeah. Mm. But what you see with this is that she was beginning to become... So she was a Southern girl, Roman Catholic. Her family was kind of intellectual, but not not extraordinarily so. She was well-read. She gets into college, and what happens to most people in college who have the smallest bit of intellectual inclination, they start to re- read widely. Even before she went to college, though, she was reading things like Thomas Aquinas. Mm-hmm. She considers herself a Thomist, whatever that means. But mm. um, in college, she would nobody become... knows. Yeah, nobody knows what it means. That's I like why Thomists, okay. Yeah. <laughs> they're fine. Yeah. <laughs> she would become, in college, a mystic, pretty. even yeah, more interested in what you would consider to be sort of the ca- uh, Catholic mystics at the time. <sighs> I'm not going to name any of the names, but you can go and you can look them up if you want to. Uh, name a name, just for fun. I don't know how you would say it. Tealard? Tealard? Tealard. T-I-E-L-H-A-R-D. Good old Tealard. Yeah, Tealard. Tealard. So. Hey, Tealard. She would... It's the kind of character that she would... Yeah, hey, it's old Tealard over there. So... This is important because her early insistence on just the rituals and dogmas of Catholicism were then just were then I don't want to say married and I also don't want to say matured because there's not a whole lot of maturing that happens with undergraduates. Mm-hmm. They joined forces mm-hmm. like really bad Avengers with mm-hmm. the undergraduates' inclination towards thinking that they have to explore everything and mm-hmm. be really intellectual and cool. It's the sort of stuff that happens to people who've discovered Dostoevsky. Sure. That's the sort of stuff that happened to her. <clears throat> and so she discovered that she had a knack for writing, and then she went to a writer's colony, was actually invited to a writer's colony in Yadu, where she met the Fitzgeralds. And she would also meet people like Robert Lowell, famous poet, fantastic poet, if mm-hmm. people haven't read Lowell, who would then encourage her to think about this new writer's program that was kind of getting off the ground and running. And that's where we get to the Iowa Writers Program. And if you have never heard of the Iowa Writing Program, it is now the most influential writing program, if not in the world, then in America at least, Mm -hmm. because it's given us Dennis Johnson, it's given us the New Yorker. (coughs) Say what? The New Yorker. Yeah, it's given us the New Yorker. It's given us John Cheever, a lot of guys who are very famous in American elite writing. And not just famous, but good. Yeah, very good, too. Um, it was actually the brainchild of a man who was the father of communication studies. And that's why Flannery O'Connor went to Iowa State University at the time was because she wanted to be a journalist. But she was encouraged then to go into the Iowa Writers Program by um, the head at the time. 
And at, she was able to learn under guys like Robert Penn Warren, mm-hmm. who were very impressed with her writing. A name that comes up often on this show, actually, yeah. Robert Penn Warren. Yeah, and we're going to talk a bit more about him in just a minute, too, as we try to position exactly what her writing style was. And so she went to this school. She got some stories published while she was there. Um, her master's thesis was a collection of six stories, the geranium, the turkey, and then some other things. Um, the geranium would actually be rewritten as her last story, Judgment Day, in the 1960s. So a nice little rounding and cap to her life. But the rest is kind of history. She would begin to publish her stories in little magazines and then in bigger magazines. And then she would be publishing in things like Suwani and Harper's Bazaar in the Atlantic and became very famous. Those are big, really Those are big, big names, yeah. And was known as the preeminent short story writer at the time until she published a couple of, not until, let's take a step back. While at the Writers Institute, she also was started working on Wise Blood, one of her first novels. Were you about to say something? I just had a thought. Yeah, and it, I think it's worth hanging on to, but I don't want it to interrupt the flow. Of, I'm I know I'm interrupting the. But, okay, go ahead. And the thought is that a Flannery O'Connor short story appearing in a magazine or in a journal in a very different context by itself as a standalone in the context of lots of other things is very different than a volume of her short stories. Yes. In terms of how you read it, how you interpret it, how you enjoy it or not enjoy it. I, yeah, I think that's actually a good thought. Seems like an important point to sort of hang on to. Yeah, if you're reading Harper's Bazaar, you're going to have, <laughs> you know, recipes all, and all kinds of whatever things. little and then you're articles, have this, human like, interest. Nice little dark story that surprises you. Well, it's going to feel it's, much more just like a punch in the gut than yeah. if you if you have 10 punches in the gut in a, a volume. Yeah, like then, the, the, the difficult thing about picking up a volume of Flannery O'Connor stories is that you know they're all going to be a punch in the gut. Mm-hmm. But if you're picking up an issue of The Atlantic and you're reading <laughs> through it or browsing it and you start on a story by O'Connor, I mean... It's like watching an M. Night Shyamalan movie where you're like, what's the twist? I know there's going to be a twist. That's... That's reading a collection where you're like, okay, what's right. the horrible thing that's going to happen to these terrible people? Right. And it gets old and it feels stupid mm-hmm. or whatever it feels like. It feels like, oh, why would I want to do that mm-hmm. after a while? But when you are when you step back and consider that all of these stories appeared in a very different context than in a collection, even her own collections, then it's just, a, it's just it's worth considering that that's the way that people would have first encountered them. Absolutely. I think that's an important point. And it worth tempering the way that we talk about. Yeah, I think I think it will. I had the thought, wanted to say it. Didn't think it belonged at this point in the conversation, but also didn't want to. It belonged. The it book, belonged. The bookening is a free flowing, <laughs> a free flowing conversation. We accept all. We accept all conversations. All conversations, except for the stupid stuff. Well, I thought I, I was making a note for us to come back to later, but you know, no, it, it, actually, it just that's... stick in, and you don't cut it or <laughs> move it or. That's a good segue, it. actually, into the. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to next portion of context because i had two ideas for my dissertation one was the judgment the other was I, there was a guy named paul gutyar who teaches at iu that's where i went to school mm-hmm. uh yeah i didn't know that guy <laughs> yeah so paul gutyar he wrote a book uh, a biography on robert da- uh, dabney who was a southern theologian and one of the things i was going to do since he what he does is he looks at the history of publications mm-hmm. so i wanted to write a dissertation on journals and the way that the short stories and the rise of the short story as a predominant art form 
especially for the elite in American in the mid 1900s, mm. was related to the publications of journals. I would absolutely like. love to read that dissertation. Actually, yeah, it was pretty. It was fun to research and stuff. <laughs> if I were to ever go back and do something like that, I probably would go with that one because it's pretty interesting. And what you can see is that these journals actually did have favorites, and they did try to skew things a certain way. And so, like you had the Sewanee. You had the Southern Review. You had the Kenyan Review. These were all related to Southern writers. You had Harper's Bazaar, and you had the Atlantic, and then you had the New Yorker. And guess which one Flannery O'Connor never had a story published in? New Yorker. Yeah, she never was published in the New Yorker, Hmm. which is a strange... It's always been a strange aspect of her life. I don't know if she ever tried to get published in the New Yorker. It's weird, because I was a pipeline for the New Yorker. Yeah, and I also don't know if... But she was with Robert Penn Warren. Maybe it wasn't, but no, it was. It was, yeah. Yeah. And so you would have thought that, at least it, later on, it became a pipeline for the New Yorker, mm-hmm. especially in the 60s and 70s. She was dead by 1965. So it could have been had she kept writing, because Marilyn Robinson writes, and she publishes things in the New Yorker right. now, and she's one of the- She's she, in Iowa. She's associated with Iowa, yeah. Well, Flannery O'Connor, she's an ironist, but she's not a light ironist, which is what a lot of yeah. the early New Yorker stuff. But a lot of these... She's a little heavy-handed for the New Yorker. Exactly. <laughs> but the publication she would be published in, like the Kenyon Review, was um, a guy named Andrew Little, who wrote a really fantastic book called The Velvet Horn. Um, and then also, the, uh, I just said the Kenyon Review, but Suwani and the Southern Review. These books, these publications that she would be published in, they were publications that were heavily overseen by guys who would be part of the Southern Agrarian Movement, which we've talked about before. If anyone wants a deep dive into that, they can go back and listen to the William Faulkner episodes. Mm -hmm. But um, just to rehash a little bit, the Southern Agrarians were a group of guys in the 1920s with Robert Penn Warren, but they were headed up by um, John Crow Ransom. And they all went to school at Vanderbilt at the same time. And what kind of unified them was their hatred of H.L. Mencken, who made fun of the South. He wrote an essay where he just lambasted the South and just said that everybody in the South is low-class, redneck hillbillies with no taste and just, you know, everything South of New York's is just trash. Minkin, brutal to everyone, a brutal, cynical, cutting man. And H.L. Minkin, he was an okay writer, but I'm not a big fan of Minkin myself. I can see why he drove these guys. They ended up writing. He's got a Minkin volume somewhere. Yeah. He's clever. Yeah. So you had these guys, the Southern agrarians, and they wrote this defense of Southern the Southern lifestyle and kind of unified them into this group of writers who would become very predominant and influential in the South. They would go on. Uh, John Crow Ransom and Robert Penn Warren would both get a Rhodes Scholarship, which even back then was very impressive to get a Rhodes Scholarship. Went and studied in o- Oxford together. They would come back. Robert Penn Warren would go on to have an amazing career. He wrote All the President's Men. Oh, no, All the Kings. Not All the President's Men. We always, we've messed that up more than once. <laughs> all the King's Men. All the King's Men, yes, sir. And then he, so Robert Penn Warren is famous for having, he's the only person to ever have won a Pulitzer Prize for the novel and also for poetry. And he won it twice for poetry. So he was just this f- amazing writer. And then you had John Crow Ransom, who would go on to be very heavily influential in like the new critical movement that would take place in the mid-1900s. And we've talked a lot about the new critical movement. The point being is that these guys became um, rock stars of literature. Mm-hmm. And obviously, then that meant that they would have some heft and weight to go and start journals that would have influence, or at least go up and head up journals that would have influence. And so they would both go and they would pull their push and give their weight to these journals. Robert Penn Warren would teach for Iowa's writing, the writer's school for a while. And they would shape the future of the American short story. 
So the South was heavily, and Southern literature was heavily involved then with these journals, which, given their size, were more favorable to short stories and poetry. And so the things that would get published by these journals would be, obviously, the short story and the poem. Mm -hmm. And so you had experimental poetry, and then you also had what would be kind of experimental short stories, but would just be kind of the crystallizing of the short story that was inherited from James Joyce. Because in the end, there's really not a whole lot different in what Flannery O'Connor's doing technically with a short story than what James Joyce was doing technically with a short story. You have a character, you're introduced to the character, you see the character's flaws, and then by the end of the story, something happens where the character is judged by the story. James Joyce doesn't do it nearly as well as Flannery O'Connor, I don't think. At least a Flannery O'Connor story is much more readable. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of the environment, the um, literary environment that Flannery O'Connor was graduating out of the Iowa Writers School in the late 1940s to then start publishing her stories would be these this this uh, environment of journals that would invite the up-and-coming elite writers to publish their stories. And she already had impressed Robert Penn Warren, who Robert Penn Warren was in Friends with John Crow Ransom, and all these other guys, uh, Andrew Little, who, who was over, I think, the Kenyon Review. So they were already going to be, and she was friends with Fitzgeralds. She had this network of people that were already there for her to then bolster her career as a short story writer. And she wanted to be a novelist, but it's her short stories that she's remembered for mm -hmm. because that's where she made her money because these little journals actually sold at the time. This was before the internet age. People actually had to buy these journals and they, they sold fairly well. And she made quite a bit of money on these stories. And she became famous enough that she would go on tour <clears throat> and she would give um, lectures. And in fact, something we'll talk about in just a minute to try and wrap our heads around her stories came from a series of lectures that she gave. Hmm. Um, Say what? Something that we'll read in just a minute from this book called Mystery and Manners came from a lecture that she gave to Georgia State University students. We've touched on then her biography. We've touched on the history of journals and the way they related to the Southern agrarian movement. Now we get to move into, and this might actually just take us into talking about her stories, kind of her style and what she's about. Mm -hmm. So when we're trying to figure out what Flannery O'Connor was doing, there are two things you kind of look at and consider. One is the short story. And as I already said, she was basically doing what James Joyce did already with Dubliners, but better. So if anyone wants to hear about the basics of what goes into a short story and what she would have seen and been taught at the Iowa Writers Conference as a good short story, you can just go and listen to those episodes. Basically what it is, you have a character, and then you have what's called the epiphanic moment, which is where the character has an epiphany. And with Flannery O'Connor, her twist was that they don't have an epiphany, and instead God acts an epiphany to give them an them. epiphany. Yeah. <laughs> they either have an epiphany or they don't, and they die. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but everybody in her stories technically has some sort they of epiphany. They have an epiphany while they're dying. Yeah. I mean, if you think about a good man is hard to find. The grandmother is having an epiphany at the end. You know, you could have been Brandon. one of my own children. Yes, yes, yes. And then she's shot. Right. Spoilers. Um, spoilers, yeah. Uh, but this whole movement around the epiphany, and then also James Joyce also had this element of paralysis where a character would become frozen at the moment of epiphany, and so they could never act. I don't really think that's an element in her stories. Well, maybe it is, actually. Yeah, we can talk about that. I don't know. Yeah, we can talk about that in a minute. The other thing, then, to kind of position her is what's called the Southern Grotesque. And the Southern grotesque and the idea of grotesque, that has a long history um, going all the way back to what are those guys, those painters? Bruegel. Bruegel, thank you. Mm -hmm. that, and, uh, and his uh, forefather. Yeah, who's the real? Hieronymus Bosch. Bosch, that's the yeah. one. These are the uh, fathers of the grotesque. And the grotesque 
even there had a sort of religious Catholic overtone in the sense that it dealt with demons and it dealt with judgment and it dealt with punishment for sins that were supposed to be seen as grotesque and disgusting, but also then an edge to it, an edge of humor that then if you add that sense of judgment, but also then an edge of humor, what you get is something that kind of verges on the profane. A lot of Bruegel and Bosch is profane. There's just no way around it. Bosch more so. I like Bruegel. I don't like. Yeah, I mean, Bosch is the one that has like the devils with horns and stuff. I like Bosch, but don't don't tell (laughs) anybody. But anyway, so you have that and then you keep moving up and then you'll get like uh, one of the most famous instances of this is a guy named Mikhail Bakhtin wrote a book about the grotesque and how it's used in modernist literature and it's like it's uh, political and it's supposed to overturn the system because with the grotesque, you get basically the freedom for people who are lower class and oppressed to use grotesque images to make fun of those who are higher. Right and doing the oppressing. And so the grotesque is always, the point being the grotesque is a part of literary thinking and especially how does the grotesque relate then to politics and the art that's involved. For Flannery O'Connor, you have, um, she's a part of what's considered the Southern grotesque. And one of the earliest instances of this would be Faulkner, who in his stories would write about grotesque people. But in particular, going to what Bakhtin was saying about it being particularly related to the lower class, it would be about those who you would usually not see as being the stars of a story. It would be uh, like in The Barn Burning. It was a family of outcasts, of people who were basically nomads going from city to city, and the sun would set barns on fire. Right. And then, <clears throat> or in uh, The Sound of the Fury, you know, the main character there being, how would you say that? Mentally handicapped? Yeah, sure. Uh, is that still mental? Is that still... I don't know how you say it. He's severely mentally handicapped. Uh But anyways, and so the grotesque then being used there also to criticize and shock the audience. And that's what the grotesque does is it it shows us these things that we're not usually supposed to look at. Mm -hmm. And it then amplifies them to 11 to make us either horrified at what we're seeing. So the most famous example with Faulkner would be the story he hated the most that he wrote would be The Mansion with uh, Popeye the main burglar out of that with his corncob pipe. Mm. Just nothing seeming quite like reality, but just enough like reality for it to be uncanny. Mm-hmm. And for it to, uh, you, you know, what, what would be a good example of this with modern day? Uh, is there anybody who does grotesques today? That is a good question. Michael Scott's kind of a grotesque. Yeah. The a little Coen bit. Brothers maybe, kind of? Uh, yeah, the Coen Brothers, actually. That's a good example. Anyone who's seen like the f- new Fargo series or something. Yeah, or seen um, the old Fargo. It's like everything's just exaggerated and it's yeah. playing on those regional things. But it's And then it's the wood chipper and all that. And yeah, so the like, grotesque in it. But the whole point being is the grotesque is supposed to horrify you in a way to actually get you to see something. Mm-hmm. And so Flannery O'Connor would then take the grotesque and make it just an essential element to her stories. And what she would do with it was actually just make it a part of her um, artistic philosophy, her aesthetic philosophy, how she saw the role of the artist. And so her most famous example of this is in her essay, which I would recommend to anyone who really wants to understand what she's trying to do, called The Fiction Writer and His Country. So she says things like this, in the greatest fiction, the writer's moral sense coincides with his dramatic sense, and I see no way for it to do this unless his moral judgment is part of the very act of seeing, and he is free to use it. So in other words, she's saying, enough about this art being free of morality. 
every artist is going to put his or her morality into the story they're telling. They can't mm-hmm. help it. Right. And I kind of, I mean, I agree with that point. That's one of the main things I keep saying with the writer matters. Sure, yeah. Is that you can't get away from that. But her most famous quote then comes in this paragraph, and this will show you why I'm talking about the grotesque. The novelist with Christian concerns will find in modern life distortions which are repugnant to him, the grotesque. And his problem will be to make these appear as distortions to an audience which is used to seeing them as natural. And he may well be forced to take ever more violent means to get his vision across to his hostile audience. When you can assume that your audience holds the same beliefs you do, you can relax a little and use more normal means of talking to it. When you have to assume that it does not, then you have to make your vision apparent by shock. To the hard of hearing, you shout. And for the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. (laughs) And right there, that paragraph perfectly sums up what she was attempting to do. She saw, um, this is another good quote in here, where she says, I am no disbeliever in spiritual purpose and no vague believer. I see art from the standpoint of Christian orthodoxy. This means that for me, the meaning of life is centered in our redemption by Christ. So all of her art was going to be centered in this particular concern of hers, that life is the redemption through Christ, and that the world as it is is distorted, but nobody can see it that way. And so she's going to have to shout at everybody so they can see it that way. Now, obviously, what we're going to find out is that your view on what it means to be redeemed by Christ actually shapes the way you then shout in the first place. Right. Because then you'd end up drowning kids in rivers because Mm. they need to be baptized. Inspiring podcasts. Yeah. Yes, indeed. But what's interesting is that in one of her letters that I was going to bring and read, she talks about this artist named Graham Greene. Have you guys read Graham Greene before? The name sounds awful. Right? Does, he wrote yeah. The End of the Affair. It's his most oh, famous Oh, sure, of course, Graham Greene. Yes, I've, I've um, read The End of the Affair. The Quiet American. Uh, the Third Man, great movie. <laughs> yeah, he had a whole series yeah. of four books called his Catholic novels. Mm-hmm. And mid-career, Flannery O'Connor wrote a letter where she said that the problem with Graham Greene is that he thinks that he needs to make Christianity so respectable to everyone by showing that actually Christianity is kind of seedy like everything else, you know? And she says, and that by that means that he just completely basically ruins his ability to save Christianity except through anything other than just a miracle. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't know how he's going to pull it off. And she doesn't think he can. And so the point being is that she wasn't willing to do like what people are doing in like New York City today with um, new reformed Christianity trying to go into the art houses and make grindhouse movies cool right right and let's all sit down and watch halloween together and talk about how this relates to sin mm-hmm. right that sort of stupid stuff Flannery o'connor would write about that stuff but what she would do is she would write about that very person going into the coffee house using halloween and one of her stories to talk to people and then she would end up killing that person right <laughs> with the slasher yeah <laughs> she would end up killing yeah with a yeah. slasher or something ironic Right. Yeah, he would be walking home at night feeling really good about himself. And then probably the person he was trying to redeem would come out of the dark alleyway and then like stab him. Yeah, it would be the person that he was trying to redeem, <laughs> yeah. of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and then would walk away saying, well, you didn't know was I was already gone or something right. like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but she would be doing that because unlike Graham Greene, she didn't want us all to think that we were all on just the same level, just varying shades of gray. She wanted to see that the world is distorted, the world is gone, the world is awful and fallen And the only way to get people to see that was to scream at them, which the irony being is she was trying to scream at people who were reading these journals who just loved her. And so then I will end with this, I guess. One of my favorite letters she wrote was to this professor who sent her this letter, really proud of the way that his class had psychoanalyzed one of her novels, one of her stories. A good man is hard to find. And then Mm -hmm. she wrote back just like, you know, I don't understand. I don't understand this. I don't see why you have to overinterpret everything. 
it seems like the only thing that people care about now is whether or not you can come up with some unique, eccentric interpretation. Mm -hmm. That's the only thing that matters. She said, a story has a meaning, but the meaning falls apart the more you try to interpret it. She said, and if you've tried to interpret it too much, you've missed the meaning. The meaning for her was sort of the gut punch she was trying to get across. And what that gut punch was, according to this right here, and whether or not she does it successfully is what we'll talk about, was to try and convince people that they are as distorted and grotesque and ugly as the people she was writing about. Mm -hmm. And that was her mission in life. Yeah. And then she died at 39. Well, there you go. There you go. Well... Thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah, I went long. Sorry. No, no, it's good. Uh, but we're going to have to come back next week to talk about whether she did a good job and to tell the story of how she inspired the booketing. So we know she did at least one good thing in her yeah. career. So let's do some donor shout outs, guys. I know everybody's waiting for it. <sighs> Brandon? Yeah. I'm going to have you shout them out. Okay. No, I, you know, I'll alternate. And what you have to do is you have to shout them out and then say a Southern colloquialism. Oh boy. Or you can just make up something that sounds like a Southern <laughs> colloquialism if you want. And I cannot pronounce the word colloquialism. There we go. All right. We'll have Jake go first. Jake, Mighty Mighty Mason. Mighty Mighty Mason, grits and fat back. Excellent. Brandon? <coughs> yeah. The immortal Chelsea E. The immortal Chelsea E. Chelsea E? Chelsea E. The immortal Chelsea E. Immortal Chelsea E. Well, I bless your heart. Jake, Nathan, not me. Nathan, not Nathan. Yeehaw. There we go. Brennan, Jimmy Beam, and little Annie Oakley. Jimmy Beam and little Annie Oakley. It doesn't amount to a hill of beans. <laughs> One of my favorite Southern sayings. <laughs> Jake, Lily of the Valley. Lily of the Valley. Ba- <laughs> Billy of the Valley. Lily of the Valleys. Reach for the sky. <laughs> <laughs> guess what my next one is <laughs> <laughs> that'll be the day uh andrew and esther the lovebirds and little baby timothy andrew and esther the lovebirds and little baby timothy the devil's beating his wife with a frying pan the devil beats his wife with a frying pan yeah is that a saying sure is why would the devil do that i don't know go ask someone in the south it sounds like a jerk that <laughs> devil the inscrutable jenny z the inscrutable jenny z there's a snake in my boot Robert and Rhonda the Lovebirds. Robert and Rhonda the Lovebirds. I might could. Might could what? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, might could. I might could. John and Joe, little baby Max. John and Joe, little baby Max. Yant to? Yant to. Yant to. Oh, uh, let's see here. <coughs> the Keith Master. The Keith Master. If the good Lord's willing and the creek don't rise. <laughs> David's Mighty Men Trucking. David's Mighty Men Trucking. Jeet yet? Jeet yet. Jeet oh, jeet yet. yet. Jeet yet. Yes, I did. My beloved Mother Beth. My beloved Mother Beth. Why, I do declare. <laughs> you do declare what? I don't know. You like going through an airport? Going through. Yeah. Eh. Let's see. Uh, my Maya. Yant too? Did I do that one? You did. No. I don't know. Jeet yet? Yant too? You did Jeet yet. Sure. I, I'm basically doing a Jeff Foxworthy routine right now, literally. That yep. is unfortunate. Here's your I, sign. It's <laughs> <laughs> not Foxworthy. You might be a redneck. So did we get one for Maya? G yet? Nod you? Nod you? Nod you? Nod you? you. Okay. Yant to? I. <coughs> I is hers. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm having trouble coming up with a sticky something for these people because I don't remember what they are, but we love them very much. We appreciate their support. I'm going to say Reckless Ryan and Juggling Judy. 
Reckless Ryan and Juggling Judy. Uh, hold your horses. Hold your horses. Uh, I'm sorry, Reckless Ryan and Juggling Judy. I'll come up with something better for you guys. I'm working on it. Danny the Dude. Maybe I'll come up with something better for him, too. Danny the Dude. Danny the Dude is a fine girl. <laughs> what a good wife he would be. But his life, his love, his something is the sea. has opened up. It put my finger on a phrase in this yeah. volume of Flannery O'Connor. So. I'm a fan. DJ Sammy G, Brandon. DJ Sammy G. It's no real pleasure in life. <laughs> Some fun, huh? Uh, let's see here. Shut up, Nathan. <laughs> it's no real pleasure in life. Aww. We just killed a bunch of people, though, Brandon. Including a baby. Yep. That's fun. Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese. Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese, are good country people. The salt of the earth. Mm, they stole that leg from Brandon. <coughs> uh, Other than that, everything you just said is very true. Yes. Benny and Dana T. Benny and Dana, Dana T. You can go a block down yonder and catch you a car, take you to the railroad station, sugar pie. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I always say that. I, it comes up in so many situations. Eric and Catherine, the lovebirds. It takes all kinds. For who? Eric and Catherine, the lovebirds. Professor X and Lady X. Professor X and Lady X. I would still be smarter than some. You'd still be smarter than some. I'll be your huckleberry when somebody's going to say that. Um, And finally, Jake, we need a really good one for the incandescent, beautiful, wonderful, sweet... Meredith. Uh, sorry, what? I want to find what, something what completely mm-hmm. different, but I always said so myself. You always said so yourself. That she was incandescent, beautiful, sweet, and whatever else I said? I reckon. I reckon. That'll do, pig. That'll do. <laughs> yep. That's, that's what I wanted for the incandescent, Meredith. <laughs> That'll do, pig. Thanks for listening, everybody. There's no real pleasure in podcasting, Brandon. Hey, the booking was written and produced and things by people. You got your Brandon, you got your Jake, you got your me. We all contributed to this bad boy. And if you want to support that work, you go to patreon.com forward slash the booking. You sign right up, give $10. You could be just like the incandescent Meredith or the incomparable. We don't have an incomparable, do we? No, we should. We will. Maybe that'll be Judge Judith and Ryan. I don't know. Um, Incomparable Judith and Ryan. I kind of like that. Remind me of that next time. The incomparable Judith and Ryan. I like that. But um, if you want to be like them, you want to be like the immortal Chelsea E, living forever, you just got to sign up for the booketing. Patreon.com forward slash the booketing. You can follow us on Instagram or Twitter as at the booketing. You can go to warhornmedia.com. And I don't know. There's just a lot of cool stuff that you can do if you like our show. Be sure to listen to our sister podcast, Sound of Sanity, wherever fine podcasts are available. Me and Jake appear on that one. Brandon, not so much, although he does appear from time to time. We get some cameos in. Yeah, yeah. And they're always, you get to see him with his wife and they're behaving exactly the way that they behave. And it's it's wonderful stuff. Wonderful stuff. I think last. Sweetheart. Mm -hmm. Dearest. Yep, your dearest wife. Ready to come home for you to quote some Shakespeare to me. Mm-hmm. More and more. Thanks for listening, Brandon. Hey, Nathan. Thanks for hosting. Thanks for contributing, Jake. Sure. Well, all right. All right, then. Bring her home, boys. Bring home the bacon. Thanks for listening, everybody. 